Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Russia pummels Ukraine with missiles and drones. The lead starts right now. Ukrainian city after city bombarded by Russia as Putin unleashes a massive attack. Do the targets reveal strategy as this war drags on? Plus, emotional plea from Iran's longest-held American prisoner, why he's taking the risk talking to CNN's Christiane Amanpour an exclusive interview from behind bars, and new details about Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell treated for a concussion in a D.C. hospital now after a fall. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we begin with Putin's brutal war on Ukraine, a deadly onslaught of Russian strikes blanketing that country today, reaching nearly every corner of Ukraine, from Kiev to Lviv, the worst Russian barrage since January, punctuated by an unprecedented variety of Russian missiles, including six rare hypersonic missiles eluding Ukraine's air defenses. Ukrainian officials say in total, 84 missiles were launched. At least 11 people in Ukraine were killed. Russia claims today's massive strike was retaliation for what it calls, quote, terrorist actions by Ukraine in a Western Russian town last week. CNN cannot independently uh, verify Russia's claims, nor can we confirm evidence of any such attack. And for the sixth time during this war, renewed fears today of nuclear catastrophe, possibly. Europe's largest nuclear power plant in Zaporizhia, once again shelled, plunged into darkness, forced to run on backup power. Ukraine's prime minister is saying it's, quote, nuclear terrorism committed by Putin. CNN's Ivan Watson's on the ground in Ukraine's capital for us, where air raid sirens wailed for nearly seven straight hours. By land, sea and air, Russia launched a massive missile attack on Ukraine, hurling at least 84 missiles and killer drones against its neighbor in a single night. The deadly barrage pounding Ukraine in the north, south, east and west decimating several houses in the western city of Lviv, killing at least two women and three men there. In the capital, Kyiv, one missile strike temporarily knocked out some electric power, while another slammed into the courtyard of a large apartment block. Fortunately, no one was killed here this morning by this missile strike, but it terrified people living next door. No one in Ukraine knows when a deadly Russian missile could explode in their neighborhood. Olya and Nastya Kuvlanovska say the 7 a.m. blast broke windows in their seventh floor apartment. It was uh, very dangerous, so uh, we uh, was very scared of it. But the close call didn't stop them from working today. We've developed immunity after a year of war, says Olya. We don't even run and hide in the basement anymore when there are air raid sirens. The Ukrainian military says air defenses shot down nearly half of Russia's missiles and drones, but can't intercept some of these deadly weapons. 
There were X-22, which we can't shoot down. We can't shoot down the Kinzhal either. Russia's defense ministry calls the missile barrage retaliation for what it claims was a Ukrainian terrorist attack in Russia's Bryansk region on March 2nd. Claims which CNN has not been able to independently verify. Deadly Russian revenge attacks that leave ordinary Ukrainians picking up the pieces. Now, Jake, the uh, Ukrainian armed forces, they say that the, the risk of further Russian missile attacks is still very high. There also appear to be concessions now that this tactic of firing different kinds of missiles, and in particular the Kinjal hypersonic missiles, that those were able to foil some of Ukraine's air defenses. Uh, and then there's the issue of the utilities and things like heat and uh, electricity that were at least temporarily knocked out. The lights are back on here in Kyiv. The heat, though, is not. 30% of homes don't have heat right now mm. in March as a result of these latest strikes. All right, Jay. Ivan Watson in Kyiv for us. Thank you so much. Now to a plea to the West from Ukraine's prime minister today, tweeting, quote, we need more, we need more weapons and more sanctions to stop the aggressor. While the U.S. has committed more than $30 billion in security assistance since the start of Putin's brutal war, some of the biggest weapons promised, such as the Patriot air defense missile systems, take months for Ukrainian soldiers to learn how to operate. Let's get right to CNN's Natasha Bertrand at the Pentagon. And Natasha, if Ukrainian troops were up to speed on operating the Patriot missile system, would that system have helped defend Ukraine from today's barrage of missiles? Well, Jake, the short answer is probably yes. Now, the issue here is that some of the missiles that Russia fired at Ukraine today were a kind of ballistic missile. They were the hypersonic missiles. And right now, Ukraine does not have a sufficient air defense system to intercept those kinds of missiles. The air defense system that they have right now are primarily aimed to defend against cruise missiles. And so if they had the Patriot system in place, while this kind of Kinzhal missile has not necessarily been tested against the Patriot uh, in, in, in past history, it is likely that it would have had a better chance of defending those hypersonic missiles than what Ukraine already has. Now, the argument that the White House has been making is that because the vast majority of the missiles that Russia launched at Ukraine this morning were actually regular cruise missiles, then a Patriot system, which is designed to intercept ballistic missiles, likely would not have made much of a difference anyway. Here is what John Kirby said just this morning. The Patriot missile uh, system uh, is really designed to go after ballistic missiles, um, and it's it's not as effective uh, on cruise missiles, and it's certainly not going to be effective uh, against drones. So uh, it's doubtful that you could say, well, if they had the Patriots, that it would make uh, a huge difference in this particular type of uh, barrage, because this was largely cruise missiles. So the key word there is largely. It was largely cruise missiles, but it was not only cruise missiles. And these hypersonic missiles that Russia launched at Ukraine, they can do an enormous amount of damage. If they had the Patriots, which they are currently training on in Fort Sill, Oklahoma, then they could have made somewhat of a difference, Jake. All right, Natasha Bertrand, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Joining us now to discuss is the chairman of the House Select Committee on Intelligence, Republican Mike Turner of Ohio. Uh, Mr. Chairman, good to see you. Let's start with Ukraine. You've said you support giving Ukraine what they need to win. Um, Quite frankly, I'm, I'm not quite sure that Speaker McCarthy's on board. He just balked at an invitation to visit Ukraine from 
President Zelensky, and, and he recently repeated his stance that he doesn't support a blank check to Ukraine, even though no one is proposing a blank check to Ukraine. Is there, do you think, the appetite in the House Republican conference for the kind of more aggressive aid that, that you're talking about? Well, the speaker didn't exactly say he wasn't going to go to Ukraine. He said he didn't need to go to Ukraine to understand the need of, of, of what they're looking at, the, the Russian aggression, the, the absolute just you know, indiscriminate killing of innocent people. I've been with the speaker, with Speaker McCarthy, uh, in Poland to the place where we're working diligently to try to make certain that we supply um, Ukraine, but also on the border of Ukraine. He's well up to speed on the issues there, of course, supported uh, sending weapons in, in the last uh, approval process. So I think, you know, his uh, approval is there and his support is there. What I think is important here is that as we look to what Russia's doing, they are running out. Uh, even though they're doing this desperation of lobbying everything that they can on, on unbelievably tragic days like today, uh, absent China stepping in, which as you know, Director Burns, the director of CIA, has, has openly stated China was considering and trying to dissuade. Absent a country like China coming in that has an inexhaustible ability to provide them with weapon systems. Russia does have a diminishing ability to attack Ukraine. As long as we continue to their support with their resolve, they're going to continue to hold back Russia. Yeah, as you noted, the CIA director said today that no one is watching Ukraine more intently uh, than China. Have you seen intelligence suggesting that China aiding you, uh, Russia with, with weaponry has gone anything past the consideration stage? Are they actually going to do it? Well, what the Director Burns has said openly and publicly uh, is that China was considering it, and certainly we're going to monitor it very closely. What is actually obvious is that when China enters, if they would enter, their weapon systems would show up on the battlefield. That would be alarming to all of Europe and all of NATO. Uh, so they would have a reaction greater than just the United States. And I don't think China's prepared for that, and hopefully they'll be dissuaded. So you've also recently praised the Biden administration's decision to declassify and publicize intelligence that China is considering arming Russia. Have you pushed uh, the Biden administration to declassify other matters? Well, certainly. I mean, this Congress is going to take a vote this Friday, joining the Senate in the call for the declassification of materials with respect to the origins of COVID. Uh, I think that you know, when you look, at, especially in space, we've been very effective of declassifying information, allowing our allies to know, identifying the bad behavior that's happening from Russia and China and weaponizing space certainly in Ukraine, declassifying what their uh, strategies were, their plans are. They have an impact on our adversaries. That's a tool that needs to be used more, and it certainly, from this administration, has been used effectively. I want to ask about your fellow uh, member of the Select Committee on Intelligence, Congressman Darren LaHood. Today in the hearing you chaired on worldwide threats, Congressman LaHood accused the FBI of unlawfully monitoring him. Uh, was the F did the FBI do that? Was it improper? Uh, and, and why were they doing it? So what uh, Darren LaHood was referring to is a report by the intelligence community of a, a, a FISA inquiry that occurred, a query that occurred on a member of Congress and that was identified as improper. Uh, Darren LaHood was coming forward and saying, I have reviewed this material and in his opinion that it referred to him. Um, I concur in his, in, in his opinion that it's, it's likely him. Uh, but the point that was important here is he was saying, look, there are abuses. There are valid and, and really wrong things that, that the intelligence community has done, more particularly the FBI has done, with FISA. We need to address those abuses as we go forward in reauthorizing this program. But we have to address those abuse, abuses head on before we go to uh, reauthorization. And we're going to lose the faith of the American public. And I think they'd lose in Congress. 
Well, and I mean, we've seen these abuses. I mean, there was an abuse like that related to uh, Carter Page, I believe, the monitoring of Carter Page uh, and a lack of disclosure of all the information. Why why renew it uh, if the FBI can't be trusted to do it uh, without violating their own rules? I do believe that there are opportunities to reform the whole FISA process. Darren LaHood, who, as you just indicated, came forward and said he believes that he has been, um, you know, not lawfully uh, queried under the FISA system, is the head of that. He's committed to working to solutions, and I think we'll find them. But but, uh, we have to have the cooperation of the FBI, the cooperation of the intelligence community. We have to, you know, look at what were the real abuses that happened, how do we fix this, and how do we protect the American public? Yeah. The chairman of the House Select Committee on Intelligence, uh, Congressman Mike Turner of Ohio. Thank you so much, sir. Appreciate it as always. Coming up next, an American prisoner held in Iran, what he told CNN's Christiana Mampour as he begs President Biden to hear his cries. Plus, party disruptor here, Senator Joe Manchin's response when asked if he might make the move to challenge President Biden in 2024. And chaos on a Southwest Airlines flight when passengers started throwing punches. And we're back with more in our worldly, the desperate plea for freedom from an American citizen who has been behind bars in Iran's notorious Evin prison for more than seven years. Siam Akdamazi was convicted in Iran of charges of cooperating with a hostile government, meaning the United States government. Namazi is the longest held American Iranian prisoner. Today, he spoke exclusively with CNN's Christian Amampour through his lawyer's phone. And Christian joins us now to talk about that conversation. Christian, Namazi took an incredible risk here to get his message across to not only President Biden, but the world. Tell us more about what he had to say. Well, we really hope that nothing happens to retaliate against him for this. He told me as he started out that it was a risk he needed to take because he's completely out of options. He feels totally abandoned and he just doesn't know what else to do. He's basically been left behind, he says, by three previous prisoner swaps between Iran and the United States. He doesn't understand why, and he's directly trying to appeal to President Biden. Here's a little bit of what he said. I think the very fact that I've chosen to take this risk and appear on CNN from from Evin prison, it should just tell you how dire my situation has become uh, by this point. I've been a hostage for seven and a half years now. Um, That's six times the duration of the hostage crisis. I keep getting told um, that I'm going to be rescued um, and deals fall apart or I get left abandoned. Um, Honestly, the other hostages and I desperately need President Biden to finally hear us out, to finally hear our cry for help and bring us home. And I suppose desperate times call for desperate measures. So, this is a desperate measure. Siamak, you wrote this letter to President Biden recently, and I'm going to quote a little bit from it. Day after day, I ignore the intense pain that I always carry with me and do my best to fight this grave injustice. All I want, sir, is one minute of your day's time for the next seven days devoted to thinking about the tribulations of the U.S. hostages in Iran. Did you get any personal response to that letter, Siamak? I've never had any response. This is what makes things particularly painful. President Biden has been in office for 25 months now. You gotta excuse me, this is hard. 
President Biden, I certainly hear and I sincerely appreciate your administration's repeated declarations that freeing the American hostages in Iran is its top priority. But I remain deeply worried that the White House just doesn't appreciate how dire our situation has become. It's also very hurtful and upsetting that after 25 months in office, you haven't found the time to meet with our families. If, just to give them some words of assurance, sir, Morad, Ahmad, and I have now collectively languished here for 18 years. Our lives and families have been utterly devastated. We desperately, desperately need you to finally conclude that we've suffered long enough as Iran's hostage. President Biden, you and you alone have the power to deliver on Obama administration's broken promise to my family. It is heartbreaking. You can hear that. And the whole interview is just gut-wrenching, really. And basically, we've heard from the administration continuing to tell us since this uh, interview that they do keep it as their top priority. But we're in a very difficult political environment where the United States has all sorts of issues about Iran, uh, including the crackdown on human rights, including the, the pretty much stalled uh, Iran nuclear deal, and of course, the allegations of Iran sending weapons to Ukraine, as you just saw with the Shahid drones. But others say that a government like the U.S. must be able to compartmentalize, yes, condemn that side, but also do whatever deal has to be done to get their own citizens back. It's happened before, and that's what Siam McNamazi and the other two Americans there want to happen again. All right, Christiana Lamport, thank you so much for that. This programming note, tonight I will moderate a special CNN town hall with Virginia Republican Governor Glenn Youngkin. The topic is the war over education. Youngkin will take questions from parents, educators, students. That's tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern, only here on CNN. But first, here on The Lead, the details about Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell's condition after his fall last night at a D.C. hotel. In our Health Lead today, we are learning just how serious Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell's condition is after he fell at a dinner last night here in Washington, D.C. CNN's Jessica Dean's on Capitol Hill for us. Jessica, the 81-year-old Republican is still in the hospital. How's he doing? Well, Jake, we know that he is recovering from this concussion, that he's going to stay there for several days. His office giving us an update just a little bit ago. And let me read you what they said. They said that Leader McConnell tripped at a dinner event Wednesday evening and has been admitted to the hospital and is being treated for a concussion. He is expected to remain in the hospital for a few days of observation and treatment. The leader is grateful to the medical professionals for their care and to his colleagues for their warm wishes. I'm told by a source he was actually at a hotel here in D.C for an event for the Senate Leadership Fund. Uh, that is a McConnell-aligned super PAC. It was described to me as kind of a thank you event where he was uh, meeting with various people. He gave a speech at that event, talked to the crowd. Uh, one person who spoke with him for several minutes said he seemed very on point, uh, that he gave what he described as a good speech. Uh, so acting very normally, everything going very normally before this trip uh, when he got the concussion, Jake. And lawmakers on both sides of the aisle are, are reacting to McConnell's event today. Uh, what are they having to say? Well, as you can imagine, there's been kind of an outpouring of warm wishes, and we have seen it from both sides of the aisle. Uh, we heard from Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. I'll let you listen to him. And also House Minority, or I'm sorry, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy as well. Listen to them. Yeah. Yeah, he's uh, 
little beat up, but he's doing all right. My thoughts this morning are with my good friend, Leader Mitch McConnell, who is recovering from in the hospital after an accident last night. I called the leader this morning and spoke briefly with his staff to extend my prayers and well wishes. And again, Jake, we talked to senators on both sides of the aisle all throughout the day. Nothing but warm wishes for the Senate Minority Leader that he gets well soon. It's unclear at this point exactly when he's going to be back here on Capitol Hill. And worth noting, just to give everyone a little context, he is the third senator that's out. Dan Feinstein has also been out. She's been ill. And Senator John Fetterman of Pennsylvania has been out being treated for clinical depression. Jake. All right, Jessica Dean, thanks. And certainly... Our thoughts are with the minority leader as well today and sending him and his family our best. Uh, this hour, President Biden headed back to Washington, D.C. after his 20th trip to battleground Pennsylvania since taking office. This time to try to sell what Republicans and even some Democrats are not buying his new budget proposal out today. CNN's Phil Mattingly is at the White House for us. And just to be clear, Phil, none of this is going to become law. That's fair. I think that's fair. I think White House officials acknowledge that that's fair. When they put together this document, and it is aggressive, both on the policy side, on the tax side, and I think on the intent side of things, there was an understanding that the vast majority of this particularly underdivided government was not ever going to find its way to President Biden's desk. However, what it is is a very clear statement of both values and I think the political sense laying the groundwork for what lies ahead. Now, inside this budget, the White House advisors included nearly $3 trillion in deficit reduction uh, related to the baseline over the course of a decade. Now, as part of that, significant tax increases on corporations and the wealthy. That will drive a majority of trillions of dollars of tax increases for those making over $400,000 a year. There's also an increase in the defense budget, $835 billion. It funds Medicare through the 2050s, really shoring up the Medicare trust fund as part of this program, which has been central to the president's political pitch. Also, caps insulin at $35, expanding on a program that the president was able to enact in his first two years. It also expands the child tax credit. It was something that they did have in place in the president's first year. It expired, now trying to go back at that again. And when you talk to White House officials, they make very clear what they are doing with this document is setting up a clear contrast with Republicans. This was how President Biden framed things. The things I'm proposing not only lift the burden off of families in America, it's also going to generate economic growth. I'm ready to meet with the speaker anytime, tomorrow, if he has his budget. Lay it down. Tell me what you want to do. I'll show you what I want to do. See what we can agree on. If we don't agree on, let's see what we, we vote on. Now. And Jake, in the president's remarks, there's a little bit of a tell. The president has long framed his budget as the starting point for a discussion, but only when House Republicans put out their budget. That budget is expected in the coming months, but that is intentional. To some degree, this budget, while required by law, is also bait. White House officials want Republicans to put out a budget. First, they're not totally sure that 218 Republicans can coalesce around any proposal, given how fractious the conference is. But they also know, given the steep spending cuts that Republicans have pledged to put into place, given the fact they've said Medicare and Social Security are off the table at this point in time, they know anything that does come out from Republicans would be, as one uh, advisor told me a couple weeks ago, a political goldmine to attack. They want to put that on the table. They know this is laying the groundwork for a very real and high-stakes battle over the debt limit, but also this will be the framing of the president's policy platform heading into a likely 2024 re-election bid, Jake. All right, Phil Manningly at the White House for us. Thank you so much. As for the squabbles within the president's own party, he may need to schedule some one-on-one time to talk budget with Senator Joe Manchin, the West Virginia Democrat, 
sounded quite a lot like Republicans when telling CNN he's worried about Washington and how it has already spent so much money versus what the future budget should look like. Manchin spoke with CNN's Caitlin Collins, who joins us now. And Caitlin, Manchin's now one of the many voices that President Biden will have to negotiate with in the coming months. Yeah. And he said $3 trillion is a good start, Jake. But obviously, there's a lot more to do. And he was critical of Democrats. He was critical of Republicans. He criticized President Biden for waiting so long to put out this budget, though, as Phil noted there, it's just a budget blueprint. But it is a statement of priorities, essentially. But one thing that Senator Manchin had a deep concern about is where, when we do talk about what the debt ceiling is going to look like, what this looming clash with Republicans and how it's going to play out is discretionary spending, the non-discretionary spending, which is essentially what is seen as non-negotiable and where they could even make changes. This is what he told me. How come we've increased $3.5 trillion of spending in 2013? How did it get to $6.2 trillion? And how come we have so much in what we call non-discretionary funding? That means we can't even talk about it, Caitlin. That's mean it's put over there. You're just going to have to continue to fund that. How did it grow so quickly? How do we have so many things that are so necessary that weren't before? And he kind of had this sense of exasperation, Jake, and he, when he was talking about where those cuts could come from and a clean debt ceiling hike, which is what Republicans have said they want to do, not tie anything to it, which is what Republicans have said they want to do. He said he would vote for it, that he's not going to hold it hostage. But he did make clear he does believe there should be changes to spending. The question, of, of course, is where does it come from? And, and Kaylin, you also asked Senator Manchin about his support for President Biden in 2024 or his lack thereof. And Manchin seemed to leave the door wide open on a possible challenge to Biden uh, for president. Yeah, this was a pretty fascinating answer because, as you know, Jake, Senator Manchin has kind of played coy on what his own political plans are going to be, whether or not he's running for reelection. He's said that he doesn't like the idea that he's being asked about it already. He feels like he just you get done with one election and then already you're being asked about another one. But the question I'd asked him, because he also has not endorsed President Biden, saying that he will support him in 2024. That's a question he's also not answering. I asked if he thought Biden should be challenged for the Democratic nomination, not necessarily by Senator Manchin, but just in general. And this is how he answered that question. Only in America does the next cycle start the day after the last cycle. This is crazy. Let's do our job at least for another year. We have a whole nother year after that. That's fair, but you know that answer is going to make some people think that you're thinking about getting into the presidential race. Hold on. I've said this and I will repeat this one more time, Caitlin. I am not making any decisions whatsoever on what my political future may be until the end of the year. Uh, pretty telling when, you know, they don't always answer the question. It was a question, of course, what he's going to do. I'll remind viewers, the other day recently he was asked if he still considers himself a Democrat. He said he considers himself to be an American. So there are a lot of questions about what his political future looks like. Is he still running as a Democrat? Is he still running in the Senate race? I don't know, maybe even 2024, Jake. It's not that difficult to say, I'm not going to run for president. I mean, I'll say it. I'm not going to run for president. So, you know, but he, I'm also he, not running for president. Yeah, you, but neither of us running for president, uh, although I'd be willing to be your vice president if you ever did decide to run. But, but the idea that he wouldn't even answer the question when, when it was just sitting there like, you know, like, like a big balloon.
Yeah, and I think one thing he's tried to stress lately is he has been certainly a thorn in the White House's side. You know, we've all seen that play out, especially uh, before we saw the changes in the 2022 midterms, is how he does often push back on the White House. And, you know, he said earlier today, he said, I'm not a Washington Democrat. He said there's also some Republicans he believes who aren't, you know, the typical Washington Republican. But one thing he's done lately is, you know, he's pushed back and said he was voting against several people that President Biden has put up for key positions. He lashed out at the Interior Department because they've delayed leases for offshore drilling. He's had a lot of issues with things with the White House, and he was effectively making the argument earlier that that is what he's going to continue to do if he disagrees with them. Uh, He phrased it as holding the White House's feet to the fire. Of course, that is a relationship that they want to keep in good terms. When they were asked recently about it, they described it as a fruitful uh, relationship change. Yeah, no sense for them to alienate Joe Manchin. I agree on. I agree with that. Caitlin Collins, thanks so much. Interesting interview. Still ahead, change of plans. The protests that disrupted a trip to Israel for the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin. Stay with us. Also in our worldly today, U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin is in Israel today. It's a visit where meetings and schedules had to be rearranged due to ongoing protests by the Israeli people against Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his attempt to weaken Israel's judiciary system. As CNN's Hadass Gold reports for us now, Secretary Austin was not shy about weighing in on the controversy. Protesters in Israel taking their days of disruption to Israel's main airport Wednesday for 10 weeks now. Tens of thousands coming out to the streets against Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's plans to weaken the judiciary and give Israeli politicians unprecedented power to overturn Supreme Court decisions. Passengers forced to drag their suitcases so as not to miss their flights. This man from France walking more than half a mile to the terminal, saying he understood the protesters' point of view. I think it's um, when you are fighting for what is right, you need to to fight and uh, not violence. Among the demonstrators, former fighter pilots who said they wouldn't heed the call to serve a government they believe is hurting democracy. It's more important to have a free country than to catch a plane. The protesters here at the airport slowing down traffic to the entrance, trying to disrupt not only Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's planned trip to Italy, but also affecting U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin's arrival. The Pentagon saying Israeli officials asked the Defense Secretary's team to push back and alter his schedule instead of him meeting uh, with officials in Tel Aviv. Instead, he's arriving here to this airport and immediately going to a complex right next to the airport, meeting with officials and then flying out. In an unusual move, Austin wading into the judicial reforms debate while standing alongside the Israeli defense minister. The genius of American democracy and Israeli democracy is that they are both built on strong institutions, on checks and balances, and on an independent judiciary. And the president also noted that building consensus for fundamental changes is really important to ensure that the people buy into them so they can be sustained. Meanwhile in Tel Aviv, protesters blocking traffic along the main highway, chanting shame and democracy, before dozens of police, including mounted officers, push them off. Organizers vowing they'll continue taking to the streets until the planned judicial changes are stopped, just like the traffic on this highway. 
And Jake, right as the protest wrapped tonight in Tel Aviv, a terror attack actually took place just a few blocks away from where the protesters were. Police and surveillance videos showing essentially a man walking up to three men walking down one of the main nightlife streets in Tel Aviv, shooting at them. All three were wounded, one of them critically, before passerbys, including off-duty police officers, shot and killed the attacker. Hamas has claimed the attacker as one of its members, saying he is in his 20s from the West Bank. Jake, just a reminder of the ongoing deadly violence that has been gripping both Israelis and Palestinians for several months now. Jake. Yeah, Hadass Gold in Jerusalem for us. Thank you so much. Turning to our politics lead, a U.S. Senate committee this week cleared the nomination of former Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti to become U.S. Ambassador to India, sending the nomination to the full Senate for confirmation. It is a controversial move given allegations that while he was mayor of Los Angeles, Garcetti ignored multiple reports of sexual misconduct by one of his key advisors, something Garcetti denies. We asked CNN's Lauren Fox to look into what happened. A nomination once on life support, now revived as Eric Garcetti gains momentum to be the ambassador to India after a years-long fight for confirmation. The former Los Angeles mayor was nominated for the position more than 600 days ago, in July of 2021. If confirmed, you know, it would be the honor of a lifetime. His nomination sailed through the committee the next January. Then it stalled as senators in both parties raised concerns over whether Garcetti knew about and ignored allegations of sexual harassment by a top aide while in office. I want to say unequivocally that I never witnessed, nor was it brought to my attention, the behavior that's been alleged. And I also want to assure you, if it had been, I would have immediately taken action to stop that. Now questions looming on Capitol Hill if Garcetti has the votes to be confirmed by the Senate. Garcetti's parents have hired a D.C. firm to lobby on behalf of their son's nomination. And those supporting Garcetti's nomination point to a report commissioned by the city of L.A. that found no wrongdoing. But last May, Senator Chuck Grassley investigated the allegations from whistleblowers himself, issuing a 23-page report alleging Garcetti, quote, likely knew or should have known that a top aide, Rick Jacobs, was sexually harassing multiple individuals and making racist comments towards others. Jacobs has denied the allegations. The White House blasted the report as partisan and continues to stand by Garcetti's nomination. We encourage and look forward to the Senate, the Senate uh, you know, moving forward with his nomination on the floor. With time, Garcetti's fortunes have begun to turn. His nomination once again cleared committee Wednesday, this time with two Republicans, Bill Haggerty and Todd Young, voting for him. I think those concerns are valid, but they don't, um, I, I don't think they rise to the level of disqualifying him. Democrats who were once on the fence now saying they'll back him. I really trust the review of the Committee of Jurisdiction, and they've looked at his record, and they have... Uh, unanimously supported him. That strengthens my review and I will vote for him. There's nothing definitive in my view that says he should have known and in that situation I am willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. But Garcetti's confirmation is not guaranteed, with several senators in both parties still undecided. Have you made up your mind on Eric Garcetti? No, not yet. What are you weighing at this point? Well, I want to talk to him visit personally, face to face. I have heard concerns, and I will take a full look at his record, the same I do for any nominee. 
And Jake, another wild card is attendance here in the U.S. Senate. We obviously don't know when Mitch McConnell, the minority leader, is going to return to the Senate, nor do we know when John Fetterman or Dianne Feinstein will be back in the Senate. So a lot of questions remain if the votes are going to be there for Garcetti's nomination. But one thing I heard over and over again from Republicans and Democrats is the country cannot go on much longer without an ambassador to India. Jake. Yeah, it's a 51-49 Senate. Very close. Lauren Fox, thanks so much. Coming up next, unruly skies. What was behind a fight between passengers on a Southwest Airlines flight? International lead now heated moments between passengers on a Southwest flight. Monday in Dallas, one man in the tan blazer there confronted another man and hit him with a flurry of punches. CNN's Ed Lavendera is in Dallas for us. Ed, do we have any idea what caused this fight? Well, Jake, it's a situation that escalated quickly. The flight hadn't even taken off yet. But from what we understand uh, from eyewitnesses who were inside the plane and some of what the punchy man said there in that video at the end, it had to do with uh, uh, the perception that the man believed that the man he was hitting had bumped into his family as they were boarding the plane. We were told by the witness that the video you see only captures the tail end of the fighting that before the video rolled, uh, the man in the tan, in the tan jacket had unleashed a flurry of about uh, four uh, other punches before the video uh, picked up. But you can hear what that man said after they were pulled apart. Tell him what happened. Tell him what you did. I will sit down in jail for you approaching my family. I will die for my family. So that's why I beat your Now, uh, both men were taken off the flight. Southwest Airlines says they commend the actions of the crew on board and separating those men, and that the flight took off on Monday from Dallas to Phoenix and arrived. Everything else was, uh, there were no other issues and arrived on time. Uh, Dallas police tell us, Jake, that both men uh, did not face any criminal charges. So as the spring break season begins and many people packing into flights across the country, a reminder that tension out there is high. Jake? Yeah. Ed Lavendera, thanks so much. Coming up. The head of Norfolk Southern questioned on Capitol Hill today about that toxic train wreck and a resident who heard his testimony back home in Ohio said the CEO was full of it. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, a young sailor who died by suicide after being bullied and hazed is now the reason why every member of the military is theoretically entitled to mental health services. So why Hasn't the Pentagon enacted this measure that could save lives? Plus, new legal trouble today for Tiger Woods. The golfer is being sued by his ex-girlfriend for $30 million. She wants to get out of her non-disclosure agreement. Does she have a case? And leading this hour, tense moments on Capitol Hill today as lawmakers demand answers about that train derailment in Ohio that released toxic chemicals into the air, water, and soil. The CEO of Norfolk Southern today apologizing to the people impacted by the disaster and announced that the company will invest $21 million in the East Palestine, Ohio community. But senators did not hold back, questioning the rail company's long-term commitment to the cleanup and enacting new safety measures. I share your focus on our employees. I will commit to continuing to discuss with them important quality of life issues. With all due respect, you sound like a politician here. CNN's Sunland Serfati takes a look now at today's testimony and how it was received back in Ohio. 
as cleanup efforts continue in East Palestine, Ohio, in Washington. I'm terribly sorry for the impact this derailment has had on the folks of that community. A public apology from Norfolk Southern CEO, acknowledging mistakes were made. It is clear the safety mechanisms in place were not enough. And promising to do more. Norfolk Southern will clean the site safely, thoroughly, and with urgency. But those promises falling far short of specific commitments wanted from many on the ground and senators on the committee today. Will you again compensate these families for their diminished lost property value for homes and small businesses. Senator, we've already committed $21 million, and that's a down payment. That is a down payment. Will you commit to these innocent families do not lose their life savings in their homes and small businesses? The right thing to do is to say, yes, we will. Senator, I'm committed to doing what's right for the community, and we're going to be there. As no, what, the what's right for the community will then be balanced. Shaw also refusing to commit to pausing stock buybacks or offering paid sick leave for all Norfolk Southern employees. I will commit to continuing to discuss with them important quality of life issues with our local craft colleagues. With all due respect, you sound like a politician here, Mr. Shaw. Paid sick days is not a radical concept in the year 2023. In the wake of the derailment on Capitol Hill, there is a bipartisan push to hold companies like Norfolk Southern accountable. The company followed the Wall Street business model. Boost profits by cutting costs at all costs. The consequences for places like East Palestine be damned. With a new bill to increase safety and boost regulations on the rail industry, requiring new safety procedures for trains carrying hazardous materials, advance notice from railways about the contents on board, two-person crews aboard every train, and boosting fines for rail carriers for wrongdoing, among other provisions. Do we do the bidding of a massive industry that is in bed with big government, or do we do the bidding of the people who elected us to the Senate and to the Congress in the first place? Shaw today refusing to outright commit to the legislation. We are committed to the legislative intent to make rail safer. For residents watching in East Palestine today, Shaw's evasions felt hollow. Just keep saying I'm committed, I'm committed, I'm committed. But like even when they said yes or no, it's I'm committed. He never answers yes or no, so I think he's full of it. And we heard from many East Palestine residents today watching this hearing who also believe that Shaw was skating around these questions. And also from those on Capitol Hill, many senators leaving that meeting saying that they were not satisfied by what they heard. Now, the push for the bipartisan legislation will continue on the Hill, but it's facing opposition, Jake, from some Republicans, leaving the fate of this bill very much in question. All right, Sunland Sarfati, thank you so much. Let's bring in Misty Allison. She's a member of the group Moms Clean Air Force. It's an environmental organization. She's a mom of two young children. She lives just over a mile from the site of the train derailment in East Palestine. Misty, thanks for joining us. Why was it important for you to come to D.C. today to watch this Senate hearing in person? I think it's important to have a visual representation of the people of East Palestine and the surrounding area. This is not just a political issue. This is a people issue. And I'm here to represent uh, not only moms like me, but other people in the area that have been impacted. Your house is only 1.2 miles from the derailment site. You have a one-year-old and a seven-year-old. Do you feel safe having your family in your home? Are, are, Are you satisfied with the cleanup so far? 
we currently do not feel safe. We are at home, but uh, we definitely question if we're making the right decision being here or not. Uh, I will say I have had some health issues. My children have had some health issues. And then in the community as well, you keep hearing lots of um, anecdotes of other people having some issues too. Uh, there has been some data out there and we are hearing that you know the air is safe, the groundwater is safe, the soil is safe. But I really think that there needs to be a lot of long-term testing and more data that comes out to suggest if we are making the right decision of continuing to stay in East Palestine for our family and for all of the residents. I don't, I don't want to pry into your own personal health issues because of this derailment, but can you give us an idea of the kinds of health issues that people in East Palestine are having that, that you've heard of or experienced firsthand? There are a lot of common ailments that people are having. Uh, congestion, bloody noses, uh, different, um, you know, like sinus type of issues. There's been some people that have been mentioning that they have coughs, uh, skin irritation problems, to name a few. Just And just to be clear, we're talking about still, not like just in the day or two after the spill weeks ago, but still having them. That is correct. So last weekend, the excavation of the contaminated soil did start, and now there is a smell in the area. We are being told that the smell is uh, like not at toxic levels, but you can notice that. And then when you when you smell that and you're hearing of people getting sick or you're having some, you know, of your own health issues, you do question is it safe to be here or not? Yeah, of course. A lot of uh, your fellow East Palestine residents. Uh, and business owners are facing the dilemma right now. Tests might show that the water and the air are safe, although there are still questions about the soil, of course. But businesses are struggling. It's not easy to sell a home. Uh, Senator Ed Markey earlier today pushed Norfolk Southern CEO on, on the indirect cost of the train derailment. I want you to take a listen to that. When you say do the right thing, will you, again, compensate these families for their diminished lost property value for homes and small businesses. Senator, we've already committed $21 million, and that's a down payment. Will you commit to ensuring that these families, these innocent families, do not lose their life savings in their homes and small businesses? The right thing to do is to say, yes, we will. Senator, I'm committed to doing what's right for the community, and we're going to be there as no, long what, as No, what's right. I mean, well, well, let me ask you, what did you think about that answer from the Norfolk Southern CEO? So I was in the audience at the Senate hearing today, so I heard that firsthand. I was in the room when it happened, and uh, that was just something. Uh, there will probably be a picture of me because my jaw just dropped. Uh, as other people were mentioning that you had interviewed, uh, he kept saying that we are going to commit to doing the right thing, but there were no uh, clear-cut answers to what that is. and. It's very subjective. So if Norfolk Southern thinks that they're doing the right thing, is that what the residents think is the right thing? I'm a homeowner as well, and I'm definitely very concerned about that as well, about our home value. But I'm mostly concerned about the safety because my family chose to move to East Palestine. My husband is from East Palestine, and we chose to move from a big city to come back to East Palestine to raise our family in small town America. We love it there. It's a great community, and we want to make East 
East Palestine great again. Uh, at the hearing, Alan Shaw said that he wants East Palestine to have the greatest comeback in American history and that he is committed to making that happen. So I just really hope that he stays true to his word and that uh, the policymakers are able to hold him accountable, the EPA is able to hold him accountable, and that we're able to make that happen, but without having a clear-cut um, plan of how that is going to be, and he wasn't able to, to commit to anything today, it's really hard to see how that uh, great comeback story is going to come to fruition. Would you like to see President Biden visit East Palestine? I would. I think that he should have been here already, quite frankly. Uh, and so... It's very disappointing that we haven't had that type of support. I know when uh, Secretary Buttigieg came, he did admit that he should have come sooner. And it's so worthwhile to actually come to an area and hear stories and see that firsthand. It's one thing about getting a briefing. And it's one thing about seeing some news stories, but to actually come in person, not only are you able to have some empathy and be able to lead with empathy and then therefore action, uh, you are actually really able to see what the people are going through. And that not only uh, sets a precedent for other people to care as well. Uh, in East Palestine, we are Americans too, and we definitely want all of the support that we can have from anybody and especially the current president. Yeah, indeed. Misty Allison, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up, an update on the American people. I'm uh, an update on the Americans kidnapped in Mexico. The cartel believed to be responsible has just issued an apology letter. Then the, the foods you should be eating to reduce the risk of dementia and Alzheimer's. Stay with us. And we're back with our world lead now in Putin's brutal quest to inflict terror on the entire country of Ukraine. Officials there say Russia launched 84 missiles and at least 11 people were killed from east to west in Ukraine. CNN's Alex Marquardt is in western Ukraine right now, where hundreds of miles from the front line, innocent people are feeling Putin's wrath. Firefighters frantically looking for survivors as others clear the debris from an overnight missile strike in Ukraine's western Lviv region. This Russian missile was destroyed by air defenses, but falling fragments started a fire that destroyed at least three residential buildings and left at least five people dead. According to local authorities, the residents were at home, the victims of Russia's latest terrorizing countrywide missile and drone attacks, far from the front lines. This is horrible. I don't know what to say, this man said, calling Russians the devil. All across Ukraine, 84 missiles were fired and eight drones launched at 10 different regions, from Lviv in the west to Kherson in the south, all the way to Donetsk in the east. In the capital of Kyiv, at least three people were injured. These cars burned out from more burning fragments. For the first time, Ukraine was bombarded with many different types of missiles, according to a spokesman for the Air Force. It was a range of cruise missiles launched from the air and sea, including six hypersonic missiles, as well as guided missiles, and two types of Iranian-made kamikaze drones. All told, at least 11 Ukrainians were killed and more than 20 wounded. On Facebook, President Volodymyr Zelensky called Russia's strikes an attempt to intimidate Ukrainians again, returning to their miserable tactics. The occupiers can only terrorize. That's all they can do, but it won't help them. Ukrainian officials describe the wave of attacks as yet another strike on the country's critical infrastructure. Power was affected in several areas, including at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, 
which had to switch to diesel generators before power was restored. The Air Force said 34 missiles and half of the drones were shot down, but several of the types of Russian missiles fired can't be taken down with Ukraine's current air defenses, which the Biden administration says they're working to bolster. Certainly we see that uh, there is a real air defense need, and that's why we're trying to focus on the kinds of air defense capabilities, short and medium range, uh, that the Ukrainians really could use to help knock down some of these missiles. And they were successful in knocking down quite a few of these uh, from last night. Russia quickly claimed responsibility, calling the strikes massive retaliation for an alleged cross-border attack in Russia last week by a pro-Ukraine group. Russian officials said that two Russians were killed. CNN has not independently confirmed the events, which President Vladimir Putin called a terrorist attack. And Jake, the highest death toll of today's missile strikes was here in the Lviv region. Five people from two different families. Uh, this region did not lose power, unlike many others. Tonight, the energy minister says that they are working on fully restoring power in those regions. He says uh, that they are making good progress. He praised the resilience of those power workers. Jake, the power is back in Kyiv, but one third of the homes uh, are without heat. And of course, it is very cold here in Ukraine in March. Now, this is, according to the minister, the 15th major strike against Ukraine's energy uh, infrastructure uh, since the war began. And the minister uh, talked about this new tactic that the Russians are using of combining these different types of missiles, cruise missiles, hypersonic missiles, as well as drones to carry out these devastating and terrorizing attacks. Jake? Alex Marquardt in Lviv, thank you so much. Also on our world lead, the cartel believed to be responsible for the kidnapping of four American tourists last week, after which two ended up dead, issued an apology. Not only that, the cartel handed over five of its members to local authorities. This is according to images circulating online and a version of the letter obtained by CNN from an official familiar with the ongoing investigation into the kidnapping CNN's Rosa Flores has been following this story from Brownsville, Texas, near the U.S.-Mexico border. Rosa, Mexico also says it's sending hundreds of soldiers to that border town. Tell us more. Uh, yes, Mexican authorities announcing that hundreds of soldiers will be sent here to Matamoros, Mexico. Uh, Mexican authorities saying that it's in, it includes about 200 Mexican Army soldiers and 100 Mexican National Guard members. And it's important to note that usually when there are high-profile incidents like in this case, the kidnapping and killing of Americans, that's usually what happens. That's usually what a Mexican government does. They send reinforcements to the border. Now, Jake, here where I am, what you see behind me is the international crossing between Brownsville and Matamoros, Mexico. We've learned from Mexican authorities that the repatriation of the two Americans who were killed is expected to happen in minutes. And what we are expecting to see is a caravan of vehicles that will be bringing those two Americans back to U.S. soil. Once they are in Brownsville, Texas, we're expecting them to uh, be taken to a funeral home where autopsies will be uh, conducted shortly after that. Jake. And Rosa, we've seen the president of Mexico pushing back on Republican lawmakers here in the U.S. who have injected some politics into the kidnapping. Today, uh, the president of Mexico said Mexico is not a colony of the United States. Yeah, the president of Mexico lashing out on Republicans after Republican Lindsey Graham announced his 
that he was planning to introduce legislation that would uh, designate Mexican cartels as uh, foreign terrorist organizations and that it would authorize the U.S. military to operate in Mexico. Well, that didn't bode well with Mexico's president. Uh, He lashed out saying that uh, that was offensive, that Mexico is a sovereign and independent country, and that it is not a colony of the United States. Take a listen. We are not going to allow any foreign government to intervene, much less the armed forces of a foreign government to intervene in our territory. Now, uh, Lindsey Graham did respond to the comments made by the Mexican president, uh, saying that he doesn't care if the president is offended. Uh, He said that people on both sides of the border are hurting and that enough is enough. Jake. All right, Rosa Flores, thank you so much. Coming up next, we're going to take you to a key 2024 state where Republicans are waffling over their nominee over breakfast. Stick around. In our politics lead now, even though the Democrats are ditching Iowa as the starting point for next year's presidential nominating process, it's still first in line for the Republican Party. A quick glance at the calendar there shows the state is already attracting plenty of attention from candidates and potential candidates, including Nikki Haley today and upcoming visits from Donald Trump and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. CNN's Jeff Zeleny is also in Iowa. He's talking to Republican voters. In Iowa, breakfast is served with a hearty side of politics. Welcome to the West Side, conservatives. In less than a year, these Republicans will help start the 2024 presidential contest. Yet talk has already turned to the end of the campaign, revolving around one question above all. We like him. The question is, can he win? He, of course, is Donald Trump, who remains at the center of the conversation at a regular gathering of loyal conservatives that Kim Schmidt presides over. Right now, he's closer to getting that majority probably in the party than anyone else. But uh, it didn't work last time, and we're concerned about that. A clear sense of Trump fatigue has set in among many Republicans, but not Terry Pierce. He still proudly wears his Make America Great Again hat and believes to his core the former president can win again. I think Donald Trump is the only one that can lead us back to where we were in 2020. Others are more blunt. I'm a Trump supporter, and if he's not on the ballot, I'm going to write him in. The Republican field is slowly taking shape. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis visits Iowa for the first time on Friday. Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley is on a three-day tour here this week, and Trump comes Monday. He's going to have to sell himself. Kelly Cook is driving around Dallas County, the fastest growing in Iowa, where she leads the Republican Party. She admires Trump, but is bracing for rising attacks among GOP rivals. We don't want two strong candidates to shred each other you know, and duke it out in, in the boxing ring and see the best man standing. So hopefully grace, dignity, poise, smarts, calculation, because in the end, we're all wanting to support the nominee. David Oman, a Des Moines businessman, said Republicans need a fresh start. Should the party move on from Trump? I'm not sure he needs a third nomination. Donald Trump's message uh, is getting a little, a little stale, a, a little old. 
looking backwards more than forwards. Bob Vanderplatz is president of the influential Christian group, The Family Leader. He too believes it's time to turn a page. There is an appetite for somebody other than Trump. Is that Trump fatigue? I think part of it is, I think there's a little bit of an exhaustion. Uh, I think there's also some people saying, I'm looking to the next generation of leaders. But a field too large and unwieldy, he said, will only benefit Trump. If Trump wins in Iowa, I don't see anybody stopping him after that. Republicans like Marianne Hanusa are listening and sizing up all of the contenders. Mindful the Iowa caucuses have a long history of humbling frontrunners and elevating alternatives. It's not a two-man race at all. I, I think it'll be a wide open field, not necessarily in terms of 15, 16 people running, but I think open in terms of that everybody's got a chance at it. Now, admiration for Trump's policies, Jake, are clear in conversation after conversation, but there certainly is trepidation, exhaustion, fatigue, you name it, about the former president himself. Some uh, say it in whispers, some say it as loud as they can. They are ready to move on. But the question is, what does that base of the party feel? Of course, they will get a new look at a different candidate tomorrow when Florida Governor Ron DeSantis makes his first trip ever to the state of Iowa. Jake. Mm. That should be interesting. Jeff Delaney in Nevada, Iowa. Thanks so much. Let's discuss. Uh, Van Jones, let me ask you, uh, as DeSantis heads to Iowa to meet with state legislators, uh, the state Senate in Florida, um, or I'm sorry, the state Senate there just passed a bill that would require uh, students to use school bathrooms that align with their gender assigned at birth. Uh, we know that education and these school issues um, as culture war issues have been successful at the state level. Uh, both for DeSantis and for Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin, who might be asked about this issue tonight in our CNN town hall. Do you think more broadly the, the fight over these education issues uh, make people like DeSantis or Youngkin standouts in this Republican presidential primary process? Well, I think that they have uh, zeroed in on something uh, that is real, which is I do think that parents coming out of covid uh, we were much more just aware of what was going on in our schools and, and people, I think, uh, you know, this idea of parents' rights, uh, I, be, I think, really resonated. But that doesn't mean that you should run for office as a bully and as a bigot uh, uh, targeting uh, you know, transgender kids and making them uh, the, the punching bag for a whole political party. These are very uh, fragile and, and vulnerable young people by all uh, standards and, and estimations. And I just think it's it's a shock. I mean, there's so many things that are going on in our schools and with our kids that this is the issue you're going to pick on and this is the population you're going to pick on. I think it's disgusting. It may work, but that doesn't make it right. Scott, what do you think? Is there any risk for the Republican Party um, talking about these trans issues and trans kids as often as they do? I think the overall issue of schools is going to resonate inside the Republican primary. It's not just about uh, you know, the issue of the bathrooms that you brought up. It's just about, and I agree with Van, parents are now a lot more aware of what's going on in school. And one thing they're aware of is what's in the curriculum and why are the kids in my school not able to read, write, and do arithmetic? And I think there are a lot of parents out there who think there are a lot of people involved in leadership of schools who care more about these cultural issues, uh, that cultural agenda, than they do about the core thing that you expect a school to do, which is to teach students. And so I think if I were advising a candidate on these matters, I would say, I think talking about the bathrooms is fine, but you got to couple it with what do you want out of a school? And I want them to read, write, and be able to do math. That's what any parent wants. And so I think as long as you are touching on both, uh, it could be a, a resonant 
uh, topic in both the primary and in the general election, frankly. Van, the senior editor for The Atlantic, Ron Brownstein, today says that leading GOP candidates are trying to ignite a procession of culture war firefights. He writes, quote, Biden, by contrast, is working to downplay or diffuse almost all cultural issues. Instead, Biden is targeting his communication with the public almost exclusively on delivering tangible economic benefits to working class families, such as lower costs for insulin, the protection of Social Security, Medicare, and the creation of more manufacturing jobs. There is another view of this strategy, although agreeing that it is a strategy. Here's how Bill Maher put it. Uh, We're going to rerun our special with him tomorrow night. Uh, And here's something. I don't think this made the final cut, but it's relevant to this point. Joe Biden does not his I think his his default setting for this is just um, I don't argue with the far left on those issues that are important to them. I mean, for some reason, Gen Z thinks of trans as the civil rights issue of their time. And Joe's just just not going to fight them on that. How do you interpret Biden's hands off approach on some of these social issues? Well, I think that uh, he is uh, more in the traditional mold uh, that you bring that, that common economic pain can create common economic purpose. And so I think he's trying to focus the conversation on the shared economic pain of the vast, vast majority of Americans that are still coming out of this COVID crisis, dealing with inflation, afraid about a recession. And when you, when you look at his agenda, his agenda is a pocketbook, lunch pail uh, set of issues, which is what he's been about the whole time. And I think he's clear. I mean, he, I think he's appointed uh, transgender people. I think he's, he's clearly on the side of civil rights for everybody. But um, the, I think he's smart not to get pulled too far into this because at the end of the day, uh, his ability to uh, uh, move, to, to build a, a massive majority, a winning majority, is going to be based more on his economic ideas. And the Republicans are out of economic ideas um, uh, and, and less on these issues. Scott, uh, there's another uh, issue that Republicans talk a lot, a lot about, and that is crime. Um, Republicans, in fact, have a new ad hitting House Democrats uh, for backing uh, the D.C. crime law, or at least not going against D.C.'s decisions on its own city, uh, which would lower maximum penalties for some violent offenses. Here's an example of that ad targeting, I believe it's Abigail Spamberger, a congresswoman from, Democratic congresswoman from Virginia. Take a listen. Murderers given reduced sentences. Carjackers given slaps on the wrist by pandering politicians. Not just the D.C. City Council. 173 House Democrats voted to support reduced sentences for violent crimes. So crazy, even President Biden won't support the anarchy. What's next? Defund the police? Tell Abigail Spanberger to keep Virginia families safe. Um, what do you think, Scott? Is that effective? Oh, yeah, uh, it's, it's going to work. Uh, and it's the reason Joe Biden changed his position on this topic. He knows he can't carry... Uh, this position that they're taking in Washington, D.C. into a uh, re-election campaign, just like he knows he can't carry uh, some of the immigration problems into a re-election campaign. It's why he's uh, considering, I guess, going back to some of the Trump-era policies on immigration that has Democrats up in arms. He's got a real issue with the idea of overall national security. And by national, I mean what's going on right here. Cities with crime, the border, you've got the Chinese balloon thing that's still you know, was totally mishandled and miscommunicated to the American people. I think there is a sense that the Biden administration doesn't have its arms around the security of our homeland. And so it's pretty easy to see why he had to change his position on this. And I think it's totally right for Republicans uh, to hit on it because you do have a lot of Democrats out there that are advocating 
uh, for uh, uh, exactly what the ad said, and, and that's not going to play uh, in this upcoming election. It's not going to play anywhere because we've got cities mm-hmm. drowning in crime out there. Van, last word. Uh, I, I think it's just a demagoguery. Uh, you know, you, it is conceivable that some of these uh, uh, things are overcharged and you can make adjustments without saying it's anarchy. But what you, what you have now is just pure demagoguery. Um, nobody wants to get the crime problem under control more than people who live in, in cities affected by it. But if you don't let the people who live in those cities make those adjustments, uh, then I don't know how you can say that you're, you're a common sense conservative that believes in local, local control and democracy. Uh, this is being demagoguery, will continue to be demagoguery, doesn't, doesn't make it right. All right, Van Jones, Scott Jennings, thanks to both of you. And be sure to tune in tonight for a CNN town hall, the war over education with Virginia's Republican governor, Glenn Youngkin. The governor will take questions tonight from parents, from educators, from students. That will be live tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern only on CNN. Golf legend Tiger Woods heading back to court. Why his ex-girlfriend is suing him for millions of dollars. Stay with us. In our sports lead now, the former longtime girlfriend of Tiger Woods has filed two lawsuits against him. In the first, Erica Herman is asking for $30 million after allegedly alleging she was unlawfully kicked out of their home. In the second lawsuit, Herman is asking to be released from the non-disclosure agreement that she previously signed. CNN's Gene Casares and CNN legal analyst Joey Jackson are with us to discuss. Gene, can you break down these two lawsuits for us? Sure. The first one is alleging that the relationship was six years long, that she lived with Tiger Woods in his home, and that she signed at the beginning of that an oral agreement, an oral tenancy agreement, that she could live in the home, everything would be paid for, and that that agreement goes on for five more years and she should be able to live in the home for the next five years. She also says that before she left the home, when she was still there, she got a phone call and it said, pack your bags, get to the airport, you're going to take a short vacation. And this was from the trust representatives. She's suing the trust. The land and the home are held in a trust. So she gets to the airport. She says at that point, trust representatives said, you're locked out of the home. You are not invited there anymore. She says that her personal belongings were taken out of the home and then they misappropriated $40,000 cash of hers. Now, she is asking for in excess of $30 million, which she says is the rental value of the rest of the time that she should be able to be in the home. The second lawsuit has to do with a non-disclosure agreement because Tiger Woodside wants it litigated privately, arbitration. She's saying, no, it should be null and void. And Tiger Wood is saying, you invite, I invited you into my home during this relationship. When it was over, I asked you to leave. There was never an oral tenancy agreement. And Joey, based on what you know, do you think her legal case has any merit? So it's premature. Uh, why do I say that? I say that for the following reasons, Jake. This is a non-disclosure agreement. And in a non-disclosure agreement, she has a legal obligation not to fully disclose right those that information, which could give rise to a further lawsuit. That's why it's not to get too legal a declaratory judgment. She's asking for guidance from the court as to whether she could get out of this disclosure agreement. Now, just to be clear, there's a federal law signed by Biden last November, the Speak Out law, and it nullifies 
NDAs, NDAs, non-disclosure agreements, which essentially say you cannot disclose the basis, the information, other facts predicated to relationships. However, it's only valid as it relates to sexual harassment or sexual assault. So there's no indication at this point whether or not there was any of that that would validate or invalidate rather the agreement. I think that would be the subject of further proceedings, perhaps before the court, such that she could give information as to whether she actually, that law applies to her. And if it does apply, then perhaps she can get out from under this NDA. At this point, it's not known. Joey, do you think it's likely the court will will rule that her NDA has to be enforced then? I think, look, an NDA is an agreement. People enter into agreements. They have to have the benefit of their bargain. That being said, Jake, right, I know now they are disfavored. They were not disfavored then. But this law, federal law says, if it relates to sexual assault or harassment, then you can nullify it. There are not sufficient facts upon which we could say that it relates to that. And if it doesn't, then a court would have no reason to undo it if it does a court would. So I think a court may inquire and want further information so that they can make an informed judgment and decision as to whether that NDA should be declared valid or invalid. All right, Gene Casares, Joey Jackson, thanks to both of you. Appreciate it. Coming up next, the foods that could reduce the risk of dementia and Alzheimer's. I'll give you a hint. It's not ice cream. Now for our buried lead, that's what we call stories we don't think are getting enough attention. It has been more than one year since Congress passed the law requiring the U.S. military to step up efforts to prevent suicide among service members. More than a year. And that law has yet to be implemented. CNN Pentagon correspondent Oren Lieberman went looking for why. On June 25th, 2018, Brandon Caserta set the law that would bear his name into motion. He said, I'm depressed. They said, suck it up and get back to work. And you can't have that. That's not how you deal with that. The young sailor, bullied and hazed in his Navy unit, according to the letter he wrote his parents, took his own life at Naval Station Norfolk. The Brandon Act became part of the National Defense Authorization Act, signed into law 15 months ago. If a service member seeks mental health services or self-reports a problem, the Brandon Act requires a mental health evaluation. It also allows service members to seek help confidentially outside the chain of command. Basically, his letter led us to this. He wanted us to do something about suicide and the toxicity that happens in our military system. That's why we created the Brandon Act. But the Defense Department hasn't followed through and issued guidance for the military services, which means there's no process in place to enact the requirements listed in the law. Hey, how are you? Democratic Congressman Seth Moulton sponsored the Brandon Act and worked with Caserta's parents to craft the legislation. He met with them again on their trip to Washington to pressure DOD to move. We hear the rhetoric all the time, but we need action. They've been sitting on their hands and more Americans die every day as a result. 519 service members died by suicide in 2021, the latest year for which numbers are available. That's a slight decrease from the previous year's 582, but any amount of deaths by suicide is too many. Last year, three sailors assigned to the USS George Washington died by suicide in a single week. Then, in December, four sailors at a facility in Norfolk, Virginia, died by suicide in a month. The Brandon Act could have been named after any one of them. It doesn't require any more legislation. It just requires the Secretary of Defense and his department to do their job. 
CNN has reached out to the Pentagon about the delay in implementing the Brandon Act. Last month, the Pentagon's Suicide Prevention Independent Review Committee unveiled 127 recommendations to combat military suicides. The Pentagon promised to review the recommendations closely. Even one suicide is too many, and we will exhaust every effort to promote the wellness, health, and morale of our total force. For the parents of Brandon Caserta, it sounds like more consideration and reviews and waiting when they have the Brandon Act ready right now. As painful as this has been, had someone else done this before us, our son would be alive. So we want to be that person that saves lives later on. Part of the idea behind the Brandon Act was to create a military reporting system similar to sexual assault, where you can report confidentially, and there, then there are a series of required steps that commanders have to take. So at least the idea of the framework is there, and yet the Brandon Act has yet to be implemented. And Jake, that's even more surprising, because Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin has repeatedly said mental health is health. This has been a focus of his, and yet the Brandon Act is still just waiting to be implemented. All right, stay on top of this, because there's, there's no excuse for this. It's ridiculous. Orrin Lieberman, appreciate it. And remember, if you or someone you love is in crisis, you can reach out to the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline by calling or texting 988. That's 988. Please remember, there is help for you. There is love for you. In our health lead, it turns out eating certain foods might reduce Alzheimer's and dementia risks and slow cognitive decline. This is according to a study published yesterday by the American Academy of Neurology. CNN's Jacqueline Howard looked into the study. And Jacqueline, I'm I'm guessing you're not going to tell me that I can have a diet of of pizza and uh, mint chocolate chip ice cream. So what should people be doing? What should they be eating? Well, sadly, you're right. Not pizza and ice cream. But the study did look at plant-based diets, specifically the Mediterranean diet and the MIND diet. And researchers found that adults who stuck to a Mediterranean-style diet or the MIND diet, they had lower amounts of beta amyloid plaques and tau tangles in their brains. And those are proteins, buildup of proteins that are associated with Alzheimer's disease. And it was interesting, Jake, the researchers actually performed autopsies on the brains of more than 600 adults after they died. And these are adults who took track of what they ate each day. They recorded their diet, and the researchers found that the adults who ate a Mediterranean-style diet or the MIND diet in the decade leading up to their death, they had lower amounts of the plaque and tangles, so much so that that low amount was similar to being 18 years younger than the adults who did not follow a Mediterranean or MIND diet. So those 18 years, Jake, that's what was really surprising here. So which foods are we talking about? Which are the most helpful in reducing the buildup of these proteins associated with Alzheimer's? Well, the study found the strongest association with leafy greens. And we know that the Mediterranean diet is high in vegetables. We're talking vegetables, fresh fruits, nuts, legumes, whole grains, fish. And the food is cooked in olive oil. And this is a diet low in red meats, sugars, eggs, and butter. And we also know, Jake, the Mediterranean diet has been associated with better heart health, with living longer. And now with this new study, we see this association with reduced risk of Alzheimer's. All right, Jacqueline Howard, thanks so much. And I will see you back here at 9 p.m. Eastern for our live town hall, the war over education with Virginia's Republican Governor Glenn Youngkin. The governor will take questions from parents and educators and students. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. Our coverage continues next with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. I'll see you in a few hours. 
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.